Pastor Paul here. If this is your first time with us, you stumbled across this feed. What we're doing is taking a month and going through the book of Matthew, a chapter a day. It's a great companion piece to our study on 1 Peter that we're walking through on Sunday mornings at Four Oaks. And hard to believe we are coming down the home stretch here in this amazing gospel. So we're up to chapter 23. There's 28 chapters. You can do the math, um, but we're coming down the home stretch of not only this book, but of the life and ministry, of course, of Jesus. And we need his help, don't we, to understand the words he inspired about his own life and ministry and his death and resurrection, most importantly. So let's pray, commit our time to the depths and meanings of your word apart from your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, please help us this morning. Please be able to um, help us locate ourselves in this text. And we ask now that you would go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never been to the Holy Land in Israel, I encourage you, if you ever get that chance to jump at the opportunity, uh, I was able to go a few years ago with a group from Four Oaks, and maybe we'll do another one of those here in a couple of years, and you can jump on board. But it really is super helpful, particularly in being able to understand different aspects of the Gospels and the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus when you can sort of see firsthand the setting, the context for which something is happening in the Gospels. And clearly this is one of those texts. So when you visit the Temple Mount um, in Jerusalem, um, there is a section of, of ancient ruins called the Teaching Steps. And the Teaching Steps are at the base of the Temple Mount, and it's where people would congregate and gather before heading up to the temple itself to offer their sacrifices. And it was, it was kind of like a church foyer in a sense. They didn't serve coffee, but nonetheless, you get the idea. And it was here um, that most likely Jesus did much of his teaching. Um, he did some on the Temple Mount itself by the temple, but he did a lot of this um, on the teaching steps because this was the common place where the scribes, the Pharisees, others would gather people up, their disciples, and teach. Now, when you're sitting on the, te temp uh, the teaching steps in Jerusalem there at the temple in the ruins, and these are, in fact, the very steps um, that people, the disciples sat on, that Jesus taught from, as the teacher would sit um, and do his teaching over the course of these um, public gatherings, behind, behind the ruins, or where, where, where this all originally happened, were sort of the offices of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. They had they officed there, did their studies and such um, at the temple site, kind of like as pastors, we have our offices at the church building. We walk down the hall, we preach and teach in the sanctuary. The same the same sort of idea. And so so here Jesus would have been on these temple steps. She has all of these the the offices of the official quote unquote pastors and religious leaders of the day behind him. Um, the Mount of Olives is over to his left, um, where all these um, magnificent tombs of prophets and priests and kings were located. And this is the setting. And remember, intense, intense opposition is building between himself 
and the religious leaders. That's ultimately only a couple of days hence going to result in his death. And here, Jesus in chapter 23, Matthew records what we call the seven woes of Jesus. Now, when in Jewish, uh, in the Old Testament, when there was a blessing given, um, a benediction, uh, they would oftentimes use the Shema. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. That was a benediction. It was sending out a blessing. But we also, there's something in the Old Testament called the malediction, where you're not sending out people with a blessing. You're sending them out with an oracle of woe, of condemnation. And here, that's what Jesus is doing with the religious leaders right in front of their home turf, right in front of their offices. In fact, they're probably gathered around listening to Jesus deliver these woes. And as modern day Christians, one of the things we have to guard against, it's very easy to read a chapter like this and just say, go get them, Jesus, way to go. Uh, bad Pharisees, good disciples, um, let them have it between the eyes. And the reality is, if you want to know how stark this was, it would be like Jesus showing up today and standing up in front of a pastor's conference that we really respect. Or gathering up all of our favorite religious leaders and favorite speakers. Or maybe churches we admire and have a large media footprint and delivering woes like this. I mean, it would have been stunning. It would have been shocking. The people everyone thought were the religious and the righteous and the uh, mo models of example, Jesus is bringing literally the thunder and judgment of God. And so we, we want to be careful and understand that, you know, it's not an exact parallel, but in terms of where we are in, part, in terms of the established, uh, what is supposed to be faithful Christianity, um, we come closest to where the Pharisees found themselves, who believe they were the faithful, the righteous. And to say all that, to say that I think what Matthew wants us to do is to see ourselves in this text and to not respond as the Pharisees did with hardened hearts, thus enforcing Jesus's judgment upon them, but to see ourselves in the text and to have a heart of faith and repentance. So I wanna to touch on some highlights from chapter 23 under the, the moniker or the thesis of what Jesus hates, okay? And that's, that's an important thing for us all to grab hold of. What, is Jesus, what does Jesus hate? And as we walk through this, you can see right off the bat, he accuses them of, of hypocrisy. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, right? Um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, do what they say, don't do what they don't do what they do. And when we think about the word hypocrites, a common definition, and we even see this in verse three, where it says, So do and observe what they teach you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. And and a lot of times that's a common definition of hypocrisy, and that's true. Uh, preaching something, saying something, doing something, but not doing it yourself. But it but it's actually more than that. Because by that definition, all of us are hypocrites, right? None of us faithfully follow the law perfectly. We all sin, we all fall short. That's not the problem. The problem is when we fail and fall short that we pretend that we don't, right? So in other words, instead of there being a humble confession of our sins and repentance and turning to Jesus, we pretend 
that we are practicing what we are preaching when in reality we are not and this is what was happening with the religious leaders if you if you walk down for example verses 13 forward you see that um, what they did practice they were practicing in order to be seen uh, they were exalting themselves they were praying in public giving in public dressing in their robes in public all to get acclaim for men and and this of course Jesus has been showing us all along in Matthew that the way of the Lord is for us to be humbled to walk as servants to be lowly in fact he he reemphasizes this here look um, Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbled himself will be exalted. In other words, to be a part of the party of Jesus, to be invited to the party, means we have to be willing to confess we're not worthy. And the problem with the Pharisees was that they thought they were worthy. In fact, they thought they were so worthy, they didn't need a doctor. They didn't think they were sick. And so this is what, in fact, Jesus is condemning here. Um, we see as we walk through the passage, he has a number of condemnations them for their exacting laws and regulations. And he uses this example of how they would tithe their mint and dill and cumin. So we think about tithing in terms of money, but they took the principle of tithing down to the smallest denominator, right? So not just tithing their money or their resources, they would tithe the spices in their kitchen and set it aside to God. It's interesting, Jesus says, that's fine that you do that. Let's look at verse 23. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, they thought to tithe, to be so exacting in their rule following, to, to tithe their, their spices in their kitchen, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he said, Jesus compares this in verse 24 to like, having a cup of water and there being a gnat in there and then straining out all your water just to get rid of a tiny gnat when in actuality there's a huge camel <laughs> in your water and you have no problem drinking the camel so to speak and I, I, I was trying to think of a contemporary illustration if you've never seen the movie Shawshank Redemption and I highly highly recommend it the warden in Shawshank uh, uh, redemption is an interesting character because outwardly he is a very religious man he has Bible verses hanging in his office you hear him uh, walking around the prison whistling a mighty fortress is our God he loves for his prisoners to keep a clean cell and to keep a Bible close by which is all fine except behind the scenes he is the most corrupt human being you could ever imagine he's into extortion and murder and bribery and and you know, the, the directors of that film just show us a great example of what hypocrisy is. We also see this hypocrisy bleeding out in the way that um, they took their vows. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit um, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But here, when it talks about, look, verses 16 onward, that they would swear by the temple, but then they would swear by the gold in the temple. And they would swear by the altar, then they would swear by the gifts that's on the altar. And all, don't have time to get into the backdrop of this, but essentially what was happening is that there were vows and then there were vows, right? So they were constantly looking for loopholes in the things that they said they would do in order to get around the law of God. So in other words, it's kind of like there's promises and there's pinky promises. You know, 
there's promises, but oh, I had my fingers crossed on that. Um, it was really just a way for them to say, well, well, you know, I didn't vow by the, the I may have vowed by the temple, but I didn't vow by the gold in the temple. And we know that the gold in the temple is what's the most important thing. I mean, it was just a crazy system to get around keeping their word. They did not let their yes be yes and their no be no. They were full again of deceit. And then finally, Jesus hits upon this idea that they were outwardly clean, but inwardly unclean. And he uses a couple of examples. One, dishes. Again, um, he says, you clean the outside of the dish for ceremonial cleansing, but inside you're corrupt. He says, you, you're like a whitewashed tomb. And again, this would have been very stark because as Jesus is teaching, and again, the Pharisees' offices are right behind him, and they're in the crowd probably. Over to the left on the Mount of Olives, you see all these tombs and what they would do. Um, when, when, um, when pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, they would whitewash the tombs. They would get them looking nice because they wanted them to stand out so that people didn't touch them accidentally because that would have meant they were unclean. And so as, as people would come into Jerusalem, they would see these splendorous tombs, okay, who were clean and whitewashed. And Jesus says, you're just like those tombs. You look fine on the outside, but inwardly you're full of decay and unclean bones. And that is your fundamental problem. It's not what's happening out here. It's happening in here. And finally, he goes on to tell them that you're just like your fathers. You say, hey, if I had been alive in Isaiah's time, I wouldn't have killed Isaiah. Hey, if I'd been alive in um, you know, Samuel's time, I would have submitted to, to David. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have persecuted the prophets like our fathers did. And he said, you are the sons of your fathers. Okay. And he, and he references this interesting verse. He says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, what is that about? Those, that is the first and last martyr of the Old Testament. So Abel, who was faithful to God, was killed by his brother, Cain. Um, Zechariah. Uh, remember, Second Chronicles was the last book of the Old Testament, the way that the Jews arranged their Old Testament. Zechariah is the last martyr. He was killed, the son of the king. And Jesus is saying, um, you were killing the kings then, and you're about to kill the king now. And then he predicts destruction upon Jerusalem. Now, interesting, what, is, what, what should we do with this? What is the goal of this? Well, Interestingly, we know that later on, many scribes and Pharisees, okay, in fact, did repent. They did, be, some of the priests became um, followers of Jesus, were leaders in the early church. There were some Pharisees like Nicodemus and others who did as well. And, and we see that glimmer of hope here when Jesus says, um, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered you and your children together as a hen gathers her broods. And he says, and you were not willing. So what is the, what is the warning? What is the implication? If you are willing, of course I will heal you. If you are willing, of course I will forgive you. If you are willing and repent, of course I will make things right. So there's, there's a sense in which the scribes and Pharisees must heed the woes of Jesus to come under the conviction of Jesus. And it's the same thing for us, right? 
It's why, you know, some, some places in the church at large will say, well, we don't need to preach about sin any longer because that stuff is covered up by the blood of Jesus. We need to think positively and encourage one another. And the reality is, if we don't come face to face regularly with our sin, we'll fail to see our need for Jesus. We'll fail to see our need for cleansing on the inside. And this is always Jesus's goal. And it's his goal for us. And so, Lord, give us a heart of faith and repentance as well, because aren't we all these things? Of course we are. We, all, we are all hypocrites. We all have deceit. We all um, want to look good for people. We all want to dress up on the outside and, and, and not attend to the matters of the inside, because that's hard. And we want to have a heart of faith and um, submission and confession to Jesus, who's our Savior. And he willingly and opens, willingly, willingly, lovingly accepts us, opens his arms to us um, today. So run to him, Four Oaks. Let's pray. Father, this, these are tough words. And even as we're seeing ourselves in them, we pray that we would not despair into death, but we would despair into life and recognize that um, this is all of us in the inner part of our core. And because of that, we need a savior. And that is you, Jesus. And we pray that you would come and cleanse us and restore us to you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, have a good one, Four Oaks. We'll see you same time, same station tomorrow, Matthew 24.